That being said, let's, if we can, uh, put together a message which I've entitled A Preparation for Christmas. And uh, the first thing that I thought we might do, just as kind of fun, is that uh, we have what we might call a Christmas quiz. And what was so interesting is the book that I mentioned last week by Mark Yarborough. Dr. Mark Yarborough is an individual uh, who is the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He also has what's called a Christmas exam. And I thought I'd read out just a few of the 15 questions here and see how you would do. Which angel did Mary, uh, told Mary to name the baby Jesus and where was she when he appeared? How did Jesus learn of the name? Uh, when, since she was pregnant, what animal did Mary ride into Bethlehem? How soon after they arrived in Bethlehem was Jesus born? And what type of building structure was Jesus born in? It goes all the way down here. Um, um, where did the drummer boy stand at the manger when he arrived at the shepherds? <laughs> How did the wise men come? Did Jesus meet the wise men? What were the names of the wise men? Where did the wise men first see Jesus? So there's 15 questions. But he, after 15, he says, really, only four of these are in the Bible. And so one of the things you find when you look at this, or in just a minute, I'm going to talk about the Probe Christmas Quiz, which has, I think, 38 questions. You realize how much we have, which is really tied into the traditions of men, rather than the Word of God. Now, the first one is pretty easy because what was the angel? Well, we know that, Gabriel. And, of course, we have that in Luke 1, verse 26. So, you know, you know how to answer that. Uh, the second question, how did jo Joseph learn the name? Well, again, Pastor Graham already gave us the answer to that one because the angel told Joseph. That's in Matthew 1, verse 20, which we looked at today. It's great to have the pastor do a warm-up back for everything we're doing here, isn't it? Um, then you go down to a lot of these which we don't know if uh, Mary rode an animal. I mentioned that last week. Of course, in uh, certainly the chosen, you have her riding a donkey. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't, but it's not in the scriptures. So you have to go all the way now down to question number seven, which was how many um, angels announced the birth of the Messiah to the shepherds. They go, well, I don't know how many. No, actually, if you go back and look at Luke 2, verse 9, one angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, later, of course, we have the angels, a great company, of course, appearing. But it's, again, interesting to that question. Then you go down, how many wise men? Well, we really don't know. We know there were three gifts. Um, I'll give you in just a minute uh, the tradition of what their names were and how they came, where they came from. But the only other one that of this 12, 15 that we have is on question number 12. Where did the wise men first see Jesus? Well, we see in Matthew 2, verse 11, that they came into a house, which is an indication that they had been there for some time. Of course, another possible implication of that is notice what Herod did when indeed he wanted to eliminate Jesus. He looked for any that were two years and younger. So it's quite possible that uh, these three, three kings of Orient are, and whether there were three, uh, traveled afar. It was a later time after that birth of Jesus. So it's just a good illustration of that. And I might just mention that uh, we at uh, Probe Ministries created a Christmas quiz again. And this was something that actually uh, Dr. Dale Talaferro, who is an uh, individual, went to Dallas Seminary, got his doctorate from uh, another seminary. And so we 
have just a couple of questions here I thought I'd mention. Can you name the parents of Jesus? Well, I always put some easy ones in there for the kids to answer. Mary, uh, God, and Joseph by adoption. Where did Joseph and Mary live before they were married? Well, we see that in Luke uh, chapter 1 and 2, that they lived in Nazareth. What was the name of the angel? We just talked about that, Gabriel. This is an interesting one. One of the questions, question number five, where was Mary when the angel appeared to her? Now, if you go to Israel to this day and you go to Nazareth, you have two churches of the Annunciation. One church is built where there is a well. Another church is built where there is a structure. I'm not sure either of them are in the accurate place, but there's one you can eliminate because it says that if you look in that passage there, that he appeared to her, and it says in Luke 1, verses 26, and then again in 28, that he came into a home, into a house. So we know for sure that the one built at the well probably didn't happen. And if you've seen some of these depictions of Mary and the angel, sometimes they show them actually appearing at the well. I don't know if that's because that's a Catholic church and that's why they want to keep that. But you can say that if you take Scripture seriously, you can begin to see that sometimes when you go to Israel, Fred and uh, Kayvon and others that have traveled with us before know how many times they said, now this is the traditional site, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the biblical site. So anyway, there's one there. What determined the city to which each Jew had to travel in order to be taxed? Well, of course, we see that, the lineage, because he was of the house and family of David. Who were the first people to see uh, Jesus? Of course, that's the shepherds. That's in Luke 2. We put this one as kind of a trick question. Number 18. What chorus did the angels sing to the shepherds? None, actually. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men of goodwill. And we'll talk about this in a minute when we get into some of these uh, various songs and choruses. What happened eight days after Jesus' birth? Well, that was his circumcision. What happened 32 days after Jesus' circumcision? That'd be 40 days after Jesus' birth. Well, that's Mary's ceremonial purification and redemption, which is recorded in Luke. And where were Jesus, Mary, and Joseph when the wise men reached them? In a house, not a stable. And then, of course, later we know that they went to Egypt and then eventually ended up back in Nazareth. So, anyway, as we go through these, if you find yourself saying, well, maybe around the table we'd like to have a quiz. We have enough easy questions that even your kids or grandkids can answer. We have enough there that have a little bit of more technical issues that uh, might even cause a little bit of discussion and debate. And again, you can go to Probe and find that Christmas quiz. It has been a very popular thing that we've done. But since we have so many in here that have certainly been singing these at the gift of Christmas, and all of us will be singing those, I thought for just a few minutes I might take some time to go through some of the most famous Christmas carols and tell you the backstory. And so when we sing those, maybe you would appreciate this. Maybe, again, this could be something you could share around the Christmas table as we sing some of those. And you could even sing these. And Sometimes in the past we've had people play uh, the, on the piano and then we'll sing them. But uh, I think it's better to just simply take on a few of those. The first one is uh, First Noel. Now, this is actually an English song. Uh, some people think that it's French because of the spelling of Noel, but it was first published, interesting enough, in 1833, as you can see. It appears in a particular hymnal, Christmas Carols, Ancient and Modern. And, of course, the first 
line of it raises some questions because in the first Noel, the angel did say, what to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, in fields where they lay, keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Do we know that Jesus was born on December 25th? Probably not. But, interestingly enough, I have pointed out before that although a lot of people have doubted whether or not Jesus was born in December, many more suggest maybe he was born in the fall, uh, one of our professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Harold Honer, who got not only a Ph.D. in this country, but another Ph.D. at Cambridge on a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. He says, if you look at some of the texts and the traditions, it is possible that Jesus was born either in December 5 B.C. or January 4 B.C. So we don't know. But whatever the case is, we also see in this wonderful uh, carol that we sing, Born is the King of Israel. And just remind us, as we come to this Christmas season, that we are talking about a king, though born in probably the most humble circumstances you can possibly imagine, in, of course, that really small town known as Bethlehem. Even the wise men from the East probably, I say, did not necessarily understand everything about the Incarnation. But again, we sing, For all to see there was a star shining in the East beyond them far, and to the earth it gave great light, and so it can, they continued day and night. The song goes on to say, Three wise men from country afar, but we really don't necessarily know if there were. Now, there are three in our Christmas uh, a gift as a gift of Christmas. We do know there were three kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were oftentimes used by these traveling caravans to be sold. And uh, there, of course, have been some arguments that maybe indeed there were more than that. Some of the early church fathers said there were 12. Why did they say 12? Well, 12 tribes of Israel, we don't know. But other traditions have said that there were three. Melchior, Caspiar, and Balthasar, and so we find that to be the case. But whatever, the Bible does teach that he was born the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that is one of those that you sing, and as you sing those, uh, I think it is a wonderful reminder of, again, the fact that Jesus was born, and at least the shepherds saw him, the wise men bowed down before him and recognized that he was king. Let's take another one, uh, which we always love to sing, O Holy Night. It was originally composed in French and later translated by this individual, John Sullivan Dwight. It was first performed in 1847. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. If nothing else, I think the idea is, is with Christ coming, we can begin to feel valuable, we can feel loved. And even today, as Pastor Graham talking about, sometimes we can feel loneliness, but we recognize that we actually have a friend in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? His first sermon, as 15 or 16 years of age, about a friend in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Probably the most quoted verse in the New Testament, certainly in the Bible, is John 3:16. God so loved the world, he came so that our souls would feel their worth in God. First Peter 1 reminds us that God actually purchased us out of slavery to sin. Uh, he did this not with something perishable like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. 
And so here we have this idea, the king of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need to our weaknesses, is no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bend. Again, the king of kings born as a human infant, placed in a manger, born in a stable, really lived a life of poverty. He, he also experienced Temptation, it says that in the book of Hebrews, faced, of course, persecution, died a horrible death on a cross, and he can relate to our experiences indeed. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Then chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. You know, slavery still exists in this world, but it certainly uh, existed in this country, but no longer. But people maybe are not physically enslaved, but they're still enslaved by sin. So I think this uh, comment still has a tremendous impact as we talk about the world that we minister to today. We are as believers. We're to model, I think, the humility of the fact that God took on human flesh, born in a manger, and gave up his rights as God. And in Philippians 2, that's what's known as sometimes called the kenosis passage. That comes from the Greek word um, of emptying himself. And just imagine what it would be like to be God in the Trinity. And then God the Son now comes to earth and lives a life of poverty. Of just, uh, again, an understanding of what the incarnation really means. Well, let's take a few more. Uh, Pastor Graham has talked about this before, so I included it because it is, um, I heard the bells, and it's a story of an incredible tragedy. If you love reading some of our English literature, uh, so much great literature from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. But to understand this, you have to understand the incredible tragedy that he went through. Um, two years before writing this poem, back in 1861, his life was shaken because his wife was fatally killed in a fire. You know, they wore the long dresses. She was too close to the fire. Maybe a spark jumped out and her dress caught on fire. And so he did his best to try to extinguish the flames first with a rug and then finally with his whole body. She dies the next day. But his facial burns were so severe that when they did the funeral, he couldn't even go to his wife's funeral. And so you can imagine, you know, burned, losing your wife. Well, it gets worse because, you know, as a matter of fact, one of the reasons he grew a beard was because uh, he was, you know, just a, a really kind of struck by how awful he looked because of these burns. And he was so overwhelmed by the grief, he said, I wondered if I should have been maybe just admitted to an asylum because I was just so overwhelmed by grief. Well, then his oldest son, who's this picture here, joined the Union Army without his blessing because this happened during, of course, the Civil War. And after the Battle of Chancellorville, uh, his son Charles fell ill with typhoid fever, typhus, and so was sent home to recover. That may have saved his life because then he missed fighting in the Battle of Gettysburg and his unit was closely eliminated, almost eliminated, so he probably would have died there. But again, he was healthy enough to rejoin his unit. And so now he gets a telegram from his son who says he's been severely wounded in this battle that took place in the New Hope Church in Virginia and is now partially 
paralyzed, maybe, um, and again, he did not know all the details of this. So now add up all of the stress points. You know, Henry Longfellow finds himself widowed with six children, um, in incredible grief anyway. His oldest son is nearly paralyzed. And then, of course, just living in the grief of a war of the Union versus the Confederacy. And so he began to write this poem about just the incredible pain. And then he says he heard the church bells. And it caused him to even look for hope in the midst of the bleak time. And so it's an interesting, if you will, carol. We sing it today because we sometimes enjoy the final verse. But it's important to recognize the previous verses that just remind us of the fact that we still live in a fallen world. And we may not be in a war right now. We may not be facing some of the kinds of trauma he is. But all of us have very difficult times and times of discouragement. So I thought I might mention that. Well, Pastor Graham mentioned uh, John Wesley, but he in passing mentioned his uh, brother, Charles Wesley. I looked it up. Can you believe this? Charles Wesley, they figure, wrote 6,500 hymns. Now, you start doing the math and figuring out he's banging out a couple of hymns a day. It's just amazing. But perhaps one of the most important hymns and Christmas carols is what? He just told us about that one. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it's been slightly edited from the original version, but it's very similar to what he wrote two centuries ago. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. The hymn, of course, reminds us why Christ came to earth. He came to bring peace. And, of course, many of them fail to understand that it's not peace on earth. It's peace between sinners and a holy and righteous God. Reminds us that sinners then could be reconciled. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one turned to his own way. But it's a reminder that even though we have broken God's commandment, and we are destined for judgment. Nevertheless, we can be reconciled with God. And this was done when Christ died for our sins. And then it describes who Jesus is. Christ by heaven, highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our what? Emmanuel. That was our message today from Pastor Graham. I like what he says. Don't sing this unless you believe it. Okay, but we can sing it, right? Uh, because, again, this is this idea of the Emmanuel. The incarnation, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became the offspring of the virgin's womb. God became man, was veiled in flesh, even though he was our incarnate deity. Jesus was our Emmanuel. And of course, the name Emmanuel, you've already heard this, God with us. Even though Jesus became man, he did not lose his deity. He was fully God and fully man. When you would see him, he looks like a man who's not God. When you see his Godhead, you see he looks like God and not man, but it's all equally true. And that is part of the incarnation that we teach about. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, Born to give them second birth. He set aside his own rights. Died for us. First of all, you just got to love Charles Wesley. What an incredible hymn writer. 
Um, Charles Wesley, another one would be Isaac Watts. We've got to get him in. We'll get him in just a minute here. But let's while we're talking about angels, by the way, a very good book on angels is by Pastor Graham. I would recommend it and certainly encourage you to get a copy of that. But this one, Angels We Have Heard on High, it was originally had the title Hearken All What Holy Singing. But I kind of like Angels We Have Heard on High. It's based on Luke 2, verse 40. Uh, 14, and we just saw this a little bit with the Charlie Brown Christmas. Glory to God in the highest and on peace to men on whom his favor rests. It also has the refrain, glory in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. Um, this vast number of angels were there in front of that. I mean, it's enough to be a shepherd, and then you get one angel, that's enough to scare you. And then now you've got this whole heavenly chorus. Uh, they had never seen anything, nor would they ever see anything again that was quite as remarkable as what actually unfolded before their very eyes. And yet um, it says that they were terrified. You know, every time angels show up in the Bible, people are terrified. You know, we think, oh, well, that's got to be an angel. No, you'll know if it's an angel. <laughs> you will be on your face. The, most of them covered their face. But again, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people today in the town of David. A Savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That's the words we just heard Linus say just a minute ago. He's the long-awaited Savior of Israel, born that night in Bethlehem, announced by the angels. And then finally, we have, of course, O Come All Ye Faithful. This was actually a Latin hymn. And it was written originally by John Francis Wade, translated by here, Frederick Oakley. Um, and uh, was used actually in Catholic churches and sung in Latin before the Protestant churches began to use it. I looked this up. It is the most translated carol <laughs> of all, which is kind of interesting to me, but that is the case. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Again, this is about the shepherds immediately came to see the baby Jesus. The final verse offers praise and adoration to the Word, the Lord, who was with the Father. Yea, Lord, we greet Thee, born this happy morning. Jesus to Thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Gotta love that. A couple more. Well, this one, of course, is probably one of the better known stories. And this comes on a little town of Bethlehem. This is Phillips. Yes, that is. Uh, not Philip, but Phillips Brook. He's an Episcopal pastor, uh, lived in Philadelphia, and he actually made a trip to the Holy Land and was very moved by the experience. Now, you find yourself in Jerusalem, and then you wanted to go to a church service in Bethlehem. If you've been to Jerusalem, it's up high. Bethlehem takes you down this path down there. Today, we drive in cars. Back then, he's riding a horse. Uh, to go down to the Church of the Nativity right there in Bethlehem. And it was a five-hour Christmas Eve service. I'll just warn you, if you come to the Christmas Eve service here, it's one hour. Okay, so you know, anybody that's uh, thinking about coming to the candlelight service is one hour. But these were five hours in this beautiful Church of the Nativity, which is still there. So anyway, he's back in Philadelphia. He's reflecting upon this. He's at the Holy Trinity Church, which is a very outstanding church there in downtown Philadelphia. And he wanted to compose something for Christmas for the kids to sing. And so he came up with a poem. And so then he asked his organist, Louis Redner, to write the music for it. And this is what today is the old little town of Bethlehem. 
O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hope and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But again, he's talking about how it's really very quiet. And, you know, you think about this, even on our Christmas Day, this next Saturday, probably will be relatively quiet on Christmas. Um, but for those in Bethlehem, no, just any other day. You know, people in the market, people moving around, um, the birth is taking place. Nobody really understands its significance. And so, again, while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. This is just like today. You know, people going about their business, maybe not even understanding the significance of this Christmas, which we have a duty and a responsibility to share with them. And then he goes on to say, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. And so again, Jesus came into the world quietly, and yet here, this angelic announcement really is the only public announcement that we know of. Born in a stable, born in a manger, the feeding trough, and that is the story of the little town of Bethlehem. And then finally... O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, once again, Emmanuel. Again, just a great uh, reminder of some of the great uh, hymns that have come together. Silent Night, probably very well known to you as well. Uh, this was actually written by two different church leaders. Joseph Moore wrote it. Then Franz Gruber actually set it to music. And again, this has been sung, of course, in German and in almost any other language as well. Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child. Holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace. And again, the idea was a quiet night, except for the announcement of the angels, but it's a holy night that changed history. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at thy sight, glory stream from heaven afar. Holy, heavenly hosts sing, Alleluia, Christ the Savior is born. While the shepherds were afraid, of course, we have the good news of the Savior as well. And then I um, certainly had to include at least one hymn from Isaac Watts. If you read through a lot of the 18th century hymnals, matter of fact, it was interesting, even some of the material that was actually taught in the public schools included some of the hymns of Isaac Watts. And so we'll end with this one. But Isaac Watts actually wrote this not as a Christmas carol, but it's one that we sing at Christmas. Isaac Watts, sometimes known as the father of English hymnology. I never did look up how many hymns he's written, but it was just an incredible number. And he wrote Joy to the World in 1719, in the 18th century. It was originally called The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. And it's still funny when we sing it, even at the gift of Christmas, we sing it at Christmas because it illustrates why this was really not a Christmas carol. If you think about it, there's no reference to angels, no reference to shepherds, no reference to the wise men, because it's really not about Christ's first coming. It's about what? Christ's second coming. 
Um, but of course we sing it at Christmas and certainly it is relevant, but it helps us understand that really what he had done is taken this very famous passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 98. And this was one of those uh, celebration psalms. And so in Psalm 98, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praise. And so then that answers why, for the Lord comes to the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. And so really it was a song of rejoicing at the time for the Lord's protection of his chosen people. But Isaac Watts used it as an expression of praise. And if nothing else, it does fit to what we've talked about with the angels. Remember, the angels said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. So I certainly think joy to the world fits very well. But it also talks about the fact that, evident, that earth shall receive her king. And every heart should prepare him room. Well, let's face it. That did not happen when Christ came. Did not even come when Christ died. Did not even come when Christ resurrected and appeared to his disciples. It is something that will, I think, ultimately happen in the future. And so it says the Savior reigns. Well, as much as he reigns in heaven, he still doesn't necessarily reign on earth. We know that. And we know that certainly we are trying to advance the kingdom of God. But there will be a time when you have the new heavens and the new earth where then no more let sins and sorrows grow. No more sin. Nor thorns infest the ground. Where did those come? That's in Genesis 3. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And I love that because if nothing else, it's just a reminder of the fact that no matter what turmoil we face right now, no matter what pain, no matter what persecution believers around the world face, and even we sometimes in this country, there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the curse will be gone. So what a great opportunity to sing that as well. I think I'll end with this because as we've been talking about some of the music, um, one of the great musical pieces is the Messiah. And uh, this was something that appeared just the other day in uh, Town Hall by Canon John. And it reminds us the story of uh, George Frederick Handel. That's, by the way, how he spells his name in the middle there. Born in 1685 in what is now Germany. Although his family discouraged him from a musical career, his astonishing natural talent proved unstoppable. Acquiring a wide range of skills, the young Handel found himself in Italy where he began to write operas. In 1712, Handel moved to London where many were fond of these Italian operas and Handel could find a market for his talent. For nearly a quarter of a century, he composed a string of popular operas and simultaneously became a composer for the royal court. And then Britain inquired actually a German-speaking monarch. You might remember George I actually was a German, was part of that. And so then, of course, since he knew that, right man in the right place at the right time. And he was become by then a naturalized citizen in 1727 and found himself writing now music for the crowning of George II. And so these coronation anthems, which became very famous, were the case. And so then there was the idea of when he wrote those, there were those that would say to him, well, let me help you with the Bible. 
And one of his lines was, I have read my Bible very well, and I will choose those verses for myself. Well, then, in the 1730s, the opera began to be less popular in Britain. He found himself, interesting enough, in financial trouble, and he sent a manuscript to uh, Charles Jennings, which was entitled Messiah. It was skillfully put together, and it put together a sequence of biblical passages which told the entire story of salvation from the fall of humanity all the way through Jesus, the suffering Messiah, to Christ's future triumph. And behind it was something else, and that is they wanted to counteract that popular view that Jesus was just more than just a good moral teacher. Even then, you had some people, as Pastor Graham was talking about today, you have some people say that Jesus was good. Some people even say that Jesus was great. And I like how he says that Jesus is greater than great, right? And even in that day, they wanted to counteract this idea that Jesus was just a good moral teacher and help them understand that Jesus was the Son of God. And so Handel was inspired by all this text and sent it to the music. And then they essentially had an English language opportunity for this to take place. Again, if you ever have listened to Handel's Messiah, I suspect most of us have, he wrote it in 24 days. 24 days, which is amazing to me. But at the very end, of course, then Handel wrote in the letters, Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone the glory. Well, then it came time to perform it. And it was performed in Dublin in 1742, was recognized as a masterpiece. And George II, who I just was talking about, was president at the first performance. And when you had this magellic hallelujah chorus, the king stood up. He maybe thought it was just a national anthem, so he stood up, and everybody else stood up. And to this day, of course, if you go, we all stand at that point. And with the success of that, he gave up opera and turned to oratorio and began to produce others. He died in 1759 and was given a state funeral in Westminster Abbey, attended by thousands. And uh, so, interestingly enough, then there's a statue of him, if you ever go to London. Maybe you've seen that. He's holding a manuscript. And it says on that manuscript, I know that my Redeemer liveth. I think it's wonderful. Well, if nothing else, I was going to give you some other things from this uh, wonderful book uh, and on Advent and some of the rest. But I think in the interest of time, we need to uh, continue on. But if nothing else, during this Christmas season, I just certainly wanted you to understand how important it is, some of this great music. And hopefully I've given you something you can share around the Christmas table. And so with that, let me say, Merry Christmas.